Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a new podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Ana Baeza, and I'll be hosting this season to talk about the different meanings we attach to our homes, building new stories from our collections that connect to contemporary issues. We invite academics, creative practitioners, and students to rethink the past through the lens of the present. For our podcast, we're very lucky to have not just one, but three guests, Zoe Burt, Lara Mantel, and Fleur Hawkins, who are all part of the textile collective Ceres. They are based across different locations in London, but most recently they have been in Brixton in South London. And they had to come all the way up north to Collendale, where the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture is, as they've been our most recent artist in residence. They drew inspiration from the Moda collections to make new textile pieces using screen printing techniques and, most importantly, natural dyes. This is their expertise, using natural plant processes to innovate in methods that are more sustainable and eco-friendly. Hence their name Ceres, which you may be interested to know, is the large asteroid that lies between Mars and Jupiter, but is also the name of the Roman goddess of agriculture, the protector of fertility and crops. So Ceres are all fascinated by the chemistry of natural colours and they go on foraging expeditions in London. They're also spreading these new ways of thinking about craft and making through their teaching at various colleges in London. So stay tuned to our great discussion about textile printing, sustainability and how museums can inspire you in your design process. Welcome Zoe, Lara and Flo. It's such a pleasure to have you here and kick off our podcast series with you. Thank you. Thank Hello. you. At Moda, it all began with one very long sitting in the museum. You spent hours wading through heaps of material from Moda's collection, from Japanese paper stencils to designs by Edward Borden, by Lucien Day, wallpaper textiles. And I'm seeing the results of this research in front of me. These are fabulous textiles, so rich in their colors, full of depth, ochres, dark reds, purples, and the textiles have a very fine quality as well. So can you each choose one of these pieces, your favorite, and tell us a bit about it and what objects from Moda's collection inspired you? One of the key things that jumped out was this dye book from 1894. And it is a remarkable uh, book because it's almost like a, a Harry Potter spell book. It's this big kind of leather bound paper tome that has got hundreds and hundreds of pages kind of a lovely old sort of slightly browned edges these pages and when it folds over it's such a big fat book it kind of creates these amazing patterns and stripes just the way it folds over onto itself onto the table and I found that a a very exciting way of um, actually getting idea for a stripe and I mixed that with um, another image which was from the Edward Borden Book of Cuts and the front cover of this book was a a stunner. It's an octagon and it has this amazing stripe within it. So I used uh, a digital photograph taken of this dye book's pages and uh, put it into the Edward Borden style octagon shape and created a repeat pattern. And uh, just using a one colour print, a very simple And um, the piece that I'm referring to now has been dyed with avocado stones onto silk. And the one colour print is made from logwood. So it's kind of a a dusky pink background and a purple print on the top. That was Zoe. And here's what Lara had to say. One of my top favourite artefacts was a Christmas card called Winter's Afternoon by a designer called Gwen White. And I 
really liked this card. It had very, very strong shadows over ploughed fields and some quite stark looking trees. Uh, the colours were much more muted than one, the ones that normally appealed to me. So it's, it was the more the contrasting shadows which really inspired me. And I printed a couple of different designs from it. I printed a two colour design, but in true natural dye modifying way, my two colour design turned into about 10 colours by the time I'd overprinted with a citric acid and then a soda ash, then put some logwood back into it. And then I had another design, which I printed onto linen. And that again was two screens, which looks like it's about 30 screens because I've overprinted them and I've picked out little bits in iron, which makes it go much darker. But I tried to get the liveliness of the shadows bouncing across the ploughed fields and the bar of the trees in both of these prints. And finally, Flo was inspired by a very different object. I was inspired by um, a geometric design from, I think, 1930s uh, with uh, five different colors, uh, which for me, the rhythm, the geometric rhythm was um, touching. And uh, so it m- reminded me a little bit of a, a city. I mean, from far away, I could imagine very simplistic cityscape. So my version is only two, well, three colors, um, repeat pattern, which are printed onto silk and wool and linen as well, the different samples. So we've been hearing how you were inspired by objects from Moda's collection. But in actual fact, you're not so much concerned with the past, but with very current ecological issues which affect the future of us all. And the work that you're doing is in fact very pioneering. There is very little out there about natural print dyeing and there are no fixed rules. Your work is part of a wider resurgence of natural dyes in the textile arts. In the past couple of years, we've seen a growing number of craft workshops and courses in the UK in some of which you teach. And these eco-conscious trends are emerging partly, I think we can say, as a response to the fashion industry's environmental impact and also its labor conditions. To give some figures from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, between the year 2000 and 2015, clothing production doubled. This was about 100 billion garments that were being produced a year. And lobbyists and activists have for a while now been calling out companies on these practices. But is this now becoming more mainstream? Only last year, Fashion Revolution Week was making louder demands for greater transparency in fashion to change the way in which our clothes are sourced, produced and consumed. Or take, for example, Extinction Rebellion across London and the UK with its wide following, which is an international movement that is also thinking about such environmental issues and about ecological collapse. So we're going to be discussing these topics in relation to your work with natural dyes and how you see yourselves as part of this conversation. But before getting into the thick of it, I wanted to get us warmed up and start with asking you a question, Lara. What are natural dyes? Natural dyes are the pigment, the colour pigments, which will come from plants and animals and minerals. The ones which come from plants are the most commonly used, and they might come from the leaves, the barks, the stems or the flowers of them. Some of the natural dyes will be grown as crops. So like any food crop, they might be organic or they might be not organically grown. As ceres, we tend to use a lot of bio-waste and kitchen waste ingredients 
So those were more likely to be organic, things like red onion peel and carrot top. Sometimes we use uh, dye extracts, which are very, very concentrated forms of the dye. We tend to buy those from companies like Wild Colors. And those companies, they will tell you, they won't tell you whether they're organic, but they'll tell you the food miles they've traveled. So the provenance of the dyes, where they come from in different parts of the world, so that we know whether they've been grown in England, whether they've been grown from further afield. So then you would say that an important consideration for you is thinking about the source and origin of the materials that you use and how far they've traveled from. Yes, I think to be truly sustainable, then it's very important to think how far not only your dye has traveled, but also how far your fabric that you're printing onto has traveled. The other day, I was reading that the world's dyes of industry produces about 500,000 tons of synthetic dye each year. These seems like an extraordinary figure that is difficult to compute in my mind. And when we talk about synthetic dyes, we need to look back at textile manufacturing in Britain and its history during the 19th century, because this had a lot to do with the emergence of synthetic dye stuffs. And many sources credit the English chemist William Henry Perkin for the first synthetic formula, mauve, of purple color, which was patented in 1856. But before this, dyes would have been made from plants, such as flowers, roots. But we often know little about this history. And Zoe, I know that you're very interested in the history of dyes. So could you run us through some of the examples that are most memorable and important to your understanding of the history of dyes? Happily, I think it is a fascinating history because prior to 1856, everything would have been dyed with either plants or uh, insects. So all your tapestries, your clothing, your bedding, your carpets, everything would be dyed with natural materials. So it was a huge change when William Perkin discovered this synthetic dye and in fact changed the natural dye industry almost overnight because by synthesizing the color purple which is actually one of the hardest colors to get in from natural dyes it caused a complete revelation and you only needed a very small amount of this uh, purple substance to dye the fabric he was only 18 years of age at the time as well when he tested this out and uh, as a chemist he was knighted he made huge contributions to the scientific industry and to the industrial economics of the country as well But prior to that, um, you know, there's evidence of Egyptians using, for example, madder, which is one of the oldest dye plants. Uh, its scientific or Latin name is Rubia tinctorum, and it is the root of the plant which yields absolutely beautiful colors of reds, pinks, yellows, browns. It's a dye stuff that was then also grown uh, in Europe from the Middle Ages as well. Uh, other heritage dye plants are ones, uh, for example, like woad, isotist, Tinctoria, uh, you get the blue color from the leaves, and that was a huge medieval European dye industry as well before the discovery of indigo, ferra, tinctoria, which had a much powerful concentration of the blue color within the leaves as well, and again changed the uh, the dye industry dramatically. It is very interesting to think that some of the dyes that have been used for thousands of years are still in use today. So I wanted to throw this question at you, Flo. Where do you source your dyes from? Where do you get them? How do you process them? What is the making that's involved? So I do use plant extracts, but I also like to forage and uh, so pick to pick uh, on walk or locally uh, ask a farmer market to keep uh, their waste. Um, I work with a local uh, vegetarian cafe as well. So when I need some uh, color, I'll ask them and um, they provide 
me with uh, onion skin, um, pomegranate skins, um, lots of different carrot tops. Also, um, at home, I just um, keep whatever waste. Maybe with one of the examples that you, we have in front of us, can you tell us what dyes did you use and what was the process of making those dyes as well? So you've talked about how you source them, but what happens afterwards? This one was uh, made with mulberry, forage mulberry, which actually Lara and I forage in... Yeah, it was last year. West London, yeah. mm-hmm. last year. And also used, so fresh plant uh, berry with uh, plant extract. Uh, so you, what you need to do, to do you um, cover the berries in a pan, let it simmer for half an hour, 45 minutes. And then I let it cool down and I sift it through a muslin uh, cloth. Then I will use some um, thickener, like an andelka, for, and mix it together. And then I will add some uh, plant extract sometime if I want to modify the tint uh, of the color and then let it cool down. And I also use some alum, which uh, is not only um, help the color to um, penetrate the fabric, but it's also an antibacterial element to the paste. So the paste keeps for a long, long time. So it's like cooking. What happens with the dye afterwards do you dispose of it or because that is a big problem also in in the fashion industry and the way that you work avoids this disposal or you, you seem to be saying that you use it all the way I to, think to I'm, the end i'll use it until the end <laughs> and i will mix it to others to do, you know make a different change of, of shade or color mm-hmm. if i can so i really stretch you know it's like when you empty your fridge i don't like to waste and i understand that these colors depend on many factors the type of fabric whether it's silk or linen or hemp the season in which the li- the dyes were made so could you tell us a bit about this flow i like the idea to um, you know start a palette so in that sense when we started the project together we uh, made color and we decided to print it on wool and linen so it gives an idea how it reacts to the to the fiber so and it's a reference to what we decide to use then so instead of straight printing your design with the color you don't know what it's going to result in so I think it's a good reference to what you decide to change maybe as well if you want you think the color is not strong enough you may be able to tweak it a little bit and in that instance, we just had the strip of all the different color we we made. And then we had some modifier running through. So it indicates the different change of color as well, So which bring another dimension. It also really relates to the first thing that we found incredibly exactly. inspiring here at the Moda Collection, which was the dive book from 1894, yeah. which documents um, several hundred colors made from natural dyes. And it was a real springboard for our inspiration and excitement. And we replicated it in a different way and it became such a useful springboard for all of our design collaborative design collections because that dye book had lots of very minute writing about the additions that the dye company the the factory had put in with their dyes to get very subtly different shades just how much ferrous sulfate you might need or how much of particular acid to just tweak it a little bit so i think this is Fascinating also your reference to them, this object from the collection, because it seems to say, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, that you were looking at all these objects as visual inspiration, but also this particular book mm. also seemed to inspire the way that you were working. Or So it also informed the process. Is that 
very much is so. that correct yeah. Yeah. it was yeah. i think it captured all of our imaginations yes. initially and we were just bowled over and wowed by it and excited and we also think one of the co-authors of the book was the father of william perkin who was the first person to create the synthetic dye so there's a, a really interesting <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, full circle connection. here yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at this point in our conversation i was curious to know more about how sarah's connected their work to debates around sustainability within fashion and textile design here's what we discussed so in talking about about sustainability, we also hear about the term circular economy, which has been around since about the 1970s, but is becoming more and more widespread. This is a model that tries to reuse, that tries to minimize disposal, and circular economies, often operating on a very local level, attempt to reduce waste and increase resource productivity by exploiting these resources to the max. And I gather that, as Flo has already mentioned, that you work closely with some of the local businesses in Brixton and that part of that waste is what then you use to make your dyes. Could you tell us more about this, Zoe? Oh, yes. So um, last September, we did an interesting project for London Design Week and made some community banners uh, inviting people to print onto uh, linen using local bio-waste dyes. So we went to cafes in Brixton Market, for example. We went to Eat of Eden, which is a vegan cafe. We went to Federation Coffee. And because of the fashionability of the moment of eating avocado, many cafes have a surplus of avocado pips, which are are rather fabulous for dyeing with. They... um, create a lovely dusky pink tone. Uh, There's also uh, cafes such as Perks and White and Hearn Hill, where they produce vast amounts of coffee grounds as well. We're able to use that for dyeing too. So it's it's a wonderful thing that I would encourage lots of students to do or practitioners is to use bio waste where you can get whether it's family and friends collecting their onion skins for you or going to cafes and asking them uh, for donations who would be happy, more than happy to help give some of these things away that would obviously otherwise just go to the bin. Yeah, it's a great way of using resources in a circular way. We think of avocados, to follow from your example, as, as a good well, a crop that requires a lot of water that's often traveled thousands of miles from uh, places with warmer climates. So yes. how do you see your role here, I guess, as a designer that is trying to reuse existing resources, but also resources that have already having major impact on the environment? It's a good question. I think with all aspects of sustainability, it's uh, not always clear or black and white, but we feel that by reusing some of these bio-waste elements, it's bringing it back into a more creative way and um, and I think we all can say around the table we actually do love avocados and we do know about <laughs> the, 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 well, the who doesn't <laughs> love avocados yeah <laughs> So yes, we we understand that, you know, we are conscious about the aspects of it as well, but I guess you make your choice. What are some of the issues that you have to negotiate when you're choosing Well, that's it. That's a great question as well, because I think that's one of the joys of working collaboratively as part of Ceres as well, that we, very lucky, we were given the materials budget for this residency and we were able to really think about that and discuss about it. And there's an excellent fabric show called The Sustainable Angle, which has had its eighth one just in January this year. And we went along to that and had a look at some of the interesting fabrics that were available and they've got some quite clear criteria about what they're allowed in to fab- uh, show in their fabric case that to do with water usage energy usage whether it's biodegradable and what effect it has on the biodiversity so these are really good things to bring into consciousness when choosing fabric so we wanted to choose a cross-section of fabrics across cellulose fibers which would be things like cotton or linen things that are grown from plants and also protein fibers things that come from animals such as wool from sheep or silk from uh, the silkworm and we chose some pea silk 
which uh, is silk harvesting according to the principle of ahimsa. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's Sanskrit, which means non-violent means that the silkworm completes the metamorphosis to a moth and hatches the cocoon. And we have all dyed one of these. And in fact, we're going to carry on and collaboratively print on those too as well. We also chose some hemp silk. Uh, hemp is a remarkable fabric, absolutely fantastic. It doesn't need nearly as much water as mm. cotton it doesn't need as much herbicide or pesticide you much get a much greater yield as well from the space that's needed and we chose a hemp silk because it has the luster of the silk but also the strength of the hemp and we also chose a linen and uh, the natural dyes all work on natural fibers we didn't use any synthetic fibers at all for this residency um, those were the fibers that we chose and wool we also chose wool but interestingly we all did some research on fabric provenance and we did find um, that from asking some of our suppliers where the fabrics came from, it wasn't always clear the, the supply chain of where the fabrics had come from. And I think that's another really interesting thing, just as much as the way that the fashion revolution, the awful collapse of the Rana Plaza factory, kickstarted this fantastic charity uh, about uh, the fashion revolution to organ who made my clothes mm. it also i feel there needs to be a raising of consciousness of where fabric comes from as well and provenance of fabric and where was your fabric made what's the provenance how much water was used and i think that's where also where the sustainable angle is an excellent showcase for new and innovative fabrics as well it became clear from what Zoe was saying that there were parallels between the ethos of Ceres and the advocacy for crafts as a kind of activism, which really brought us to an interesting conversation about artisanship, process, and a spirit of collective sharing and making. And particularly inspiring was the fact that this is still uncharted territory and that they have lots of ideas of how to develop this further, as you can hear from this next bit in our discussion. So what brings the work together is this focus on, you know, craft artisanship yeah. and your approach, right? And I wanted to ask you about that, because I think there is an important thing to consider here about how we enjoy what we do. And you hear about people often being stressed or being mm -hmm. in, in certain work conditions or, you know, having a hard time to get by, especially if they're creative artists. And I wonder first, you know, how is it to be collective? how that maybe was helpful but also um, how do you see that what you do expresses something that is also about a joy of working in a certain way? Well, I think there has been such a revival um, of craft recently. You know, we just had London Craft Week uh, just last week as well. And I think what we're doing is quite pioneering. In fact, there's no books on uh, natural dye prints at all. And I think by developing a community of practice where we all shared our knowledge very freely and openly has become a great sort of springboard to develop our work collectively. And even though we have all have individual approaches I have learned you know so much from working with both Laura and Flo and it's an inspirational group so it's on many levels it's good think it's the process to me that is the joy as well it's not the actual always the finished product it's actually taking raw materials and printing them and then reacting to the prints and then having Flow or Zoe's um, input into how the print is going and then changing it again and tweaking it so that it's always a work in progress that you're reflecting on until you get something that you absolutely love and adore. Yeah, there is something very magical as well and uh, being the three of us, uh, you know, we bounce back ideas and, you know, share all this excitement in a really slow but uh, constructive way as well to build up more. And we all, because we're all in education as well, we're all concerned about how to share it too and we think it's 
it's an important development as well in terms of textile practice mm-hmm. for sustainability. Yeah, and I did want to ask you about that, actually, because as you say, you're all in education, you teach. Are you trying also to spread a certain way of doing things, of thinking, of making? I mean, are there bigger stakes here of, of shaping not only what you do, but also what other people will be thinking about, a way of living, a way of thinking about craft and almost of reconfiguring our relationship with the world. Yes, I think through teaching, we inspire students in a you know different outlook on what really to think deeply about uh, life in, uh, and their impact. Uh, yeah. and impact on the world. And I think we come across different projects. I mean, uh, I did personally part in project with students. And uh, I think it's really, you know, a good platform for them to talk about all that or be inspired by a yeah, different way of uh, making things and taking the time for it as well mm. not fast you know well that's uh, important right the making the time to mm-hmm. do things but do you sense that there is a receptiveness from students oh, oh yes. yes there is yeah, 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 very much so yes. yeah it feels like a growing yeah. area of interest as well mm. i think lots of millennials are, are concerned about sustainability and climate change and mm-hmm. uh, you you mentioned pre- uh, earlier as well we've just had the extinction rebellion mm. protests um we've just had the 49th earth day recently as well there's there's a lot of design activism happening mm-hmm. at the moment which is exciting to be feel part of design is a powerful tool for change yeah. i guess it, in in a sense there's a political nature to to your work to how you produce but i don't know whether you would say that you take a consciously political stance or how how do you see the really quietly political i don't think we're mm, we're yeah. sort of with banners though i think textiles have been very <laughs> exciting previously where you know textiles have been used for example by the suffragettes that's mm-hmm. been used in protests all over the world because yeah. it's a powerful way of communicating ideas but i think just quietly we are political yeah. but you know there's movements like craftism craftivism <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> which i feel a, a kindred spirit to as well you know really lovely gentle feminine sort of way of creating change as is a yeah, slow yeah. process I slow process there's a sharing of social values so yeah. it's to do with the process of creation but also how you're thinking about the world and the people you're interacting with in the world as well part of people being engaged in the creative process of making a, a garment or adding something to it and um, whether it's through embellishment i would encourage students to learn skills as many skills as mm. possible whether it's you know screen dyeing uh, sewing uh pattern cutting you know become involved in sort of shaping your garments and changing them and adapting them i think that would be exciting yeah. yeah i think i think zoe's entirely right if you invest in the making and the creative process then that's the joy that you're you're getting from that that garment that you're making or you're, or you're embellishing and you don't need to feel that you have to go out and buy something to get that same adrenaline hit because you've already invested in the creation of something and buying yeah. vintage as well yeah. The, yeah. the quality as well and uh, you know well if you buy don't buy cheap and uh, you know, really consider where it comes from invest in long time i mean you know we have all clothes that i mean my grand i was my grandmother was wearing or my mother and I think there is something very precious about the the clothes in that sense if you look at generation that the heirloom it goes through generation and it's more to cherish that way than Mm. something disposable so to go back to your work do you anticipate that each piece will have a long lifespan I hope so but once it's <laughs> once it's out of your hands it's yeah. up to the owner how they look after it but yes of course you, your hope would be that it would be looked after and be cherished and enjoyed 
for a long time. So do you see these as unique pieces? Could you imagine that they would be produced on a bigger scale? I imagine the answer is probably not, but I just... <laughs> no, not, not mass scales, kind yeah. of small runs. If, yeah. But we're still thinking about our next steps, what will happen anyhow. Yeah, we, we have ideas. We thought it'd be very lovely to do a simple collection of garments. And then there's other ideas about writing the book that we don't yeah. think has been written yet about natural dyes. And, and that was well, natural dye printing. There's been lots of books about natural dyes, but not, not any about the printing. And we think that's a fascinating subject. Mm. And carry on collaborating with different yeah. projects as well. And because the work we've done with the Remakery recently, which is a, an excellent place uh, resource in Lambeth, which is all about reusing materials. And we recently were there helping them grow a little dye garden. And uh, we talked to them about setting up a print studio where we're purely using natural dyes and natural print paste, which we think is quite a unique thing in London. We don't know anywhere else or, or worldwide that does that. And also looking at different ways that we can use renewable energy and uh, facilitate a water system that reuses the water as well. One of the things that was inspiring was seeing flow with her silk screens using a rag to clean it as well so there's a lot of water involved in the textile mm. industry just using a rag clean rag to clean it down is a way of minimizing that impact as well mm. so we really like to set up a little uh, sustainable print print, print room, room. Yeah. membership with no yeah. chemicals educative, educative and commercial yeah. yeah great well thank you very much i don't know if there's anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't really talked about We'd like to say a massive thank you to Moda for giving us the opportunity yes. to explore their collection and uh, to work on this project. It's been a real revelation and joy, and thank you very much. Yes, it's, yeah, we it's were, a fabulous project. We're so. very privileged to have had this opportunity. The space and the to, time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful working with you and talking about your work with you as well and, and just getting to know more about how you see yourselves in the wider context of fashion. So thanks for a great discussion. That was all from Sarah's. You can find images of your designs on Figshare. Just follow the link mdx.figshare.com slash moda. That Feels Like Home is produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, at Middlesex University. In other episodes, we will continue talking about contemporary issues that emerge from MODA's collections, from the gentrification of London suburbs to the relationship between our homes, everyday things and memory. You can listen to these podcasts and download transcripts at our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk, and you can follow MODA on Instagram and Twitter at MODA Museum, and on Facebook at Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. You can also listen to these podcasts from your preferred podcast listening platform, and we ask you to subscribe if you like our podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, please visit our website, and if you'd like to see an object in person, book an appointment with us by emailing at moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baeza, and I will be back with more quirky stories, but for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>